when you're that close to somebody, you do always end up catching the humanity in them. And it doesn't matter whether or not that's somebody who's using drugs. It doesn't matter whether or not that's even right-wing politicians. It doesn't matter whether or not it's people on death row. If you, if you get close enough with the camera, you can see the humanity in them. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. I'm Zachary Siegel, and welcome to the show. If you follow this program, you know we love to talk shit about the media. We deconstruct how stories are framed and read between the lines to unpack the implicit drug war rhetoric. We've dunked on a lot of ridiculous tropes and headlines, from how touching fentanyl won't kill you to the invention of so-called crack babies. But today, we're going to be talking about the imagery that accompanies the news. Sometimes you'll be reading a great piece on the overdose crisis, and it's just ruined by a crappy stock image of a gigantic syringe and a mountain of what is obviously flour or someone baseless nodding out on the sidewalk. So today we're going to discuss what accurate, tactful drug imagery should look like. And we have the perfect guest to help us do that today, Nigel Brunston, the official unofficial photographer of the modern day harm reduction movement, who is joining us uh, via the UK. He has shadowed the Chicago Recovery Alliance, Harm Reduction International, and many others in the front lines of the so-called drug war. His photos of the workers, advocates, and people who use drugs, as well as the academics, are, are loaded with grief, emotion, hope, and solidarity. If you follow the show, you've no doubt seen Nigel's images. Narcotta actually used Nigel's portrait of Dan Big for our memorial episode about him. To get the full experience, we highly recommend going to nigelbrudson.com, and that's Nigel, N-I-G-E-L-B-R-U-N-S-D-O-N.com, so you can see his work while we chat. And as a special gift to Patreon subscribers, we're going to be raffling off one of Nigel's prints that we'll send in the mail. We'll be holding the raffle at the beginning of July, so if you support us on Patreon between now and then, you could get one of these great portraits from Nigel himself. We want to keep this program ad-free, and we're really grateful to our patrons for all their support. But now let's get on with it. Nigel, welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you on. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So, Nigel, to, to kick things off, uh, you've been capturing images of the harm reduction community all over the world for over two decades. And there's no other photographer who has the kind of access to this world that you do. And I think a good example of that is your recent photo essay in Filter Magazine about a supervised injection site in Australia. And one of the images that really stuck with me is people who work for the site are, they're responding to an overdose And the photo is so carefully taken, like ensuring the privacy of the user who's being revived. There's just like a lot of tact and a lot of empathy in your work. And, you know, I I guess I want to hear like the origin story. Like, where did you get started documenting harm reduction? Um, 
It kind of started back when I started doing the work and I was going to conferences and I work I work in the Midlands of the UK, which is basically um, not at all exciting. It's a horrible area. It's um, the the amount of good harm reduction even back in the day that was going on here was, you know, there was three or four people in each town and that's it. Uh, but the conferences were this chance to get together with four or five hundred other people that were well respected. They were people that I was getting to know. And it really started off with just taking photographs of people's slides because I wanted those slides back. It was in the early days of the Internet. Stuff wasn't being put online a lot. And then I was taking a few portraits at the same time. So, yeah, it's it started off with just that wanting to learn more. I'm I'm obsessed with the idea that we should be learning as much as we can about stuff, because otherwise we're never going to get things right. If you follow my work, you'll, you'll notice I, I do a, quite a bit of street photography myself. And um, there's sort of an ongoing dialogue among people about um, balancing the privacy and um, the humanity of your subject while also telling the story. Now, I don't know whether you consider yourself an artist, a, a documentarian, a harm reductionist, um, but as a, as a journalist, um, I'm often required to sort of make that balance and it doesn't always fall in favor of privacy uh, because the story I need to tell is to sort of get the, the crisis uh, front and center in, into people's um, well, now into their Twitter feeds, I almost said living rooms. But um, I, I wonder if you encounter that same sort of ethical dilemma ever. Um, I'm working with, uh, you know, a producer now who sort of began out adamantly opposed to showing in, injection shots, you know. Um, but we're, we're doing a, a story on, on supervised injection. And, and I don't feel like that's a story you can really tell properly without sort of demonstrating how people are injecting without supervised injection as an option um can you comment on on that on the ethics uh question i think i mean with street photography you've got the, the obvious one that comes to mind and it's in every street photography group on facebook is the photographing homeless people without their permission and without their knowledge and it's the idea that where they're in a public space so there's no um expectation of privacy but that's all well and good for you and I who are choosing to go into a public space. But if that's the only space you have to be and you're vulnerable, then that's where it gets really mawkish and it gets really um, problematic to be photographing people. But as you say, there's sometimes the narrative that you're trying to get over, which is a positive narrative about how this needs to change does require those kind of images i've got very few images in my collection of homeless people that i've taken without their permission but one of them that i couldn't resist taking was a guy asleep in a bank doorway while a lorry is delivering um sandwiches and sausage rolls to a bakery at three o'clock in the morning that's right next to him as well and you've just got this guy in the middle of winter asleep in a bank doorway next to all this food and it's this horrible sort of comment on our society that that's what's happening. When it comes to uh, photographs of people who use drugs, I mean, you've mentioned you mentioned earlier the photograph in the drug consumption room in Sydney. Um, 
that photograph took me three weeks to get because I was in I was in in that particular drug consumption room. I was in there for two weeks, off and on for the whole two weeks, and that was on the last day that I was there. And it's one of those situations where you do you have to choose your angle so that you're anonymizing things but still managing to tell the story. You've got to make sure that you're not um, making it into almost like uh, you know the the idea of like horror shows and torture porn and this kind of stuff. You get the same kind of thing with stuff to do with drugs. There was a lot of criticism of one photographer who did a big photo spread. I can't remember what his name is off the top of my head. Um, but he did a big photo spread about the war on drugs and it included pictures of people injecting under lorries in the winter. And it was criticised because he was very... It came across as the police are really suffering in the drug war and the, whereas the pictures of people using drugs was all... It was gratuitous. Whereas this picture of this person, the, the, the picture in question is somebody who's overdosed in a drug consumption room. And five minutes after the picture was taken, they were sitting having a cup of tea. But everything's calm. You can see in the picture that everybody knows exactly what they're doing. This person's flat on their back. You can only see their feet. And we need, we need to be careful. I've got the privilege of time there. If you're a reporter taking photographs, you might only have sort of 10 minutes to get your shot of something. So I, I had the privilege of time there, which does make it a, little, a lot easier. I, th I think when it comes to people who use drugs, we've got to we've got to understand that we're in a power dynamic where we're the ones in control, we're the ones in charge. And yes, you can ask people for consent to photograph them, but if that consent is already being messed up by this power dynamic of you're the guy with the big expensive camera and they're the person who is hoping you can throw them a few crumbs or hoping you can do a little something for them that's not true consent so i think wherever possible we shouldn't be taking photographs of where we're identical people are easily identifiable the photos that you're talking of about showing uh, injecting in an injecting space and supervised injecting those photos you can get without necessarily um, revealing somebody's identity as long as you're careful with things like tattoos. I'm glad you brought up the topic of informed consent because it's not just getting permission. It's making sure that they know what they're signing up for. Um, and a lot of people don't understand how an image can be manipulated to misrepresent them. So it is important to uh, make sure people understand what they're getting or, or just not not taking the shot right like uh being respectful of even if they want to show this unflinching perspective to to not publish it yeah and i, I mean there's there's um there's a, a series of photographs on my site of um a woman called Chantel and when i was in australia they flew me out to this town called dubbo which is sort of out proper out hour it was a, a two-hour flight on a plane out of sydney to get there and a little hopper plane sort of thing 
So it's this dusty little town in the middle of nowhere. And this, this is a young woman who is trying to get treatment for her methamphetamine use. And they're using her in a campaign um, about the fact that she's got to go 400 kilometres to the nearest treatment that's appropriate for her because of her children. And all of the conversation that I was having with her on the sort of hour, hour long drive out to where we were going to do the shoot was about the consent, was about, do you really understand where the images I'm going to take are going to go? These are going to go online. They're never, they're going to be identified with you. They're going to, um, by their nature, it's, it's one of those rare cases where I can't call somebody an activist or an advocate and get away with maybe they use drugs maybe they don't use drugs because that's my catch-all term um but in her case it's this is definitely somebody who uses drugs so that entire conversation in the car was around does she fully understand this and does she fully consent you can't do that if you report speaking to somebody for five minutes it's i I refuse to believe that you can be that sure of consent in that time with somebody where there's that power dynamic that's different. I don't know. It's it's the, the consent thing's so difficult. It really is. It really is. And and when I'm doing my reporting and I I usually offer an anonymity to people uh, who want to talk about their drug use. So some people will be like, Yeah, I don't care if you use my full name in a in a story about meth and I'm like, Well, I think we should use a pseudonym here because sometime down the line you'll get a job interview. They'll Google your name. Like I, I just want to be um, as respectful and like think about that perspective for them when you're dealing with these types of sources. H have you ever encountered any hostility or controversy for taking a photo or, or how do you avoid that? Um, I'm very good with wave offs. Um, there's at the international harm reduction conference in Porto the other week. Um, there were two people who were, I, I pointed the camera up towards them and they just waved off and that's it. I didn't take a picture of those people again for the entire conference. Um, and when I came to the editing, I made sure that any pictures that I'd accidentally got of them didn't get used. And that's easy in a conference situation. Um, in a in a street situation or in a situation where I'm, in, I'm photographing in a drug consumption room or another space like that, it is the conversational thing. It is making sure that you're speaking to people and it's it's also making sure that you understand and that they understand the because these photos are important no matter what i've i've got entire you know gigabytes of photographs that will never see the light of day um of meetings about underground drug consumption rooms of uh people using drugs in certain situations and those those photos aren't going to see the light of day, but they're there as a historical document if we need them further down the line. So they're for me to keep and collate. Um, things like if there's a if there's an underground um, site that's happening, that should be documented. That should be photographed. What's happening there is important because the moment that in ten years' time we're in a situation where the work that's being done there is being done on a more official basis by some very well-funded organisation that then says that they're the first people to do this work. We need to be able to say as a community, no, you're not. And here's the evidence of why you're not. We, this was being done 10, 15 years ago by people who were risking their liberty to do this work and to keep these people alive.
And I think that's why it's it's important no matter what that we take the photos, it then becomes uh, the job of the photographer and the job of the community to decide when though when and where and how those photos are shared. And once you've put a photo online, you 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 lose all control of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like how you position yourself in the community as, on the one hand, being a documentarian of the community, but also you do really care about the movement and you talk about the role that photography plays in um, in activism. And I when I think about the you know, like how critical photography was to the civil rights movement or to ending wars. It, it just seems like um, the images that, that you're taking, like you're saying down the line, will play such a, a, a critical role. And so can you sort of talk about that, sort of how you wear, you're wearing two hats, like what role you're playing as a photographer in the movement right now? Um. It used to be that the the photographer role was secondary to everything else I did, and then about a year and a half ago, I, I'm I have terrible imposter syndrome. I always feel that I'm not doing enough work, I'm not doing the right kind of work, that I'm not liked in a room, all that kind of thing. So a camera is a brilliant thing to do because I can hide behind a camera. But it wasn't until about a year and a half, two years ago, that I finally flipped the switch in my head to being photographer was what I am as opposed to something I did and first and foremost I'm a harm reductionist I I believe that harm, harm reduction is a philosophy it's a way of living and it's a way of doing things in general so I bring that into the photography um as a when it comes to the actual my position within the community I am so so aware of the levels of privilege and the levels of privileged access that I have for some reason, people accept me into their spaces. Um, I'm I'm quite well liked, as far as I know. So the and now it's getting to the stage that people fully expect me to be there with a camera, and that that then gets to be a more accepted thing. I this is why I don't get very many wave offs now because so many people are used to me being around. Everyone must trust you, right? It, it it can't just be that, you know, they like you and Nigel's a nice guy. It's that for you've been there for so long and and there has to be a, a high level of trust that you've nurtured over the last many, many years to, to get to the point now where it's almost like, hey, where's Nigel? We, we need Nigel here. That's a lovely thing to say. <laughs> uh, I, I hope so. I, I mean, I've, I, as far as I know, I've never done anything to be to betray anybody's trust as far as the sort of work that I do. Um and I I do I think the difference between I mean, uh was it you or Chris was saying that you you do street photography? That was that was me and I'd I'd like to just say thank you for revealing your imposter syndrome. It's something I suffer from as well. It's a terrible thing and and if you can if you can ever get rid of it, it would be wonderful. But I don't think anybody with imposter syndrome ever gets rid of it. Um, but the the well, where was I going? There was a thing I was going to say about um, yeah, the difference between a photographer and everybody because everybody's kind of a photographer now. Every single, pretty much every single person we know is carrying a really good from back in the day level 
camera on them. You know, in everybody's phone, there's a really good camera there. They're taking loads and loads of pictures. Granted, it might be of their food, it might be selfies, it might be whatever, but I'm sure that most of the people working in harm reduction are taking some photos which would be important to harm reduction as a movement. Those photos are probably going to die on those phones when they change phones, when they change accounts, because they're not being... And when they're, when they're being taken, they're not being deliberately taken. When you're out doing street photography, there's a difference between when you're just randomly shooting and then getting back and checking the photos and finding it you were lucky a couple of times to those few times where you take a photo and you go, yeah, that one, that was the photo. When I'm shooting um, a, if I'm shooting a portrait of somebody, I'll take maybe 20 or 30 shots to get a portrait. And I, I have my camera set so it gives me a quick blip of what the photo is as I'm taking it. And I know when I've got that photo, when I've got the photo that has somehow captured that person. Um, so the photo of Dan that you were talking about earlier uh, in the introduction. That photo of Dan was taken um, a, about well, a few years ago now, but he came to visit me in my house. And um, my daughter actually interviewed him for, she, she did a bit of interviewing on him. I interviewed him for stuff. We went out for dinner and um, I had Dan in my house. So I'm going to take portraits. I've got a really nice gray wall in my house. that's ideal for taking portraits against. So I took those portraits of Dan. So when that image started being, this is always difficult. When that image started being shared of Dan everywhere, that then is an image that I know is in my house of my friend that we've lost. But the images that you take have to be very deliberate. And we, I didn't know when I was taking that, that that would become this important image. And it really is an important image. It's being used pretty much everywhere now of him. Cartier Prezan called that the uh, decisive moment, I believe, when you just know you've captured it. And we have the good fortune to have digital now. Um, which gives us many more opportunities to catch that moment. But, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that you can take powerful images without shooting um, people in identifying ways. And, and I would agree, you know, some of the most powerful images I think I've taken, some don't even have people in them all the time. I'm thinking of one that's just a, a table in a hit lot, you know, and a guy, every time he shot up, he would take out a crucifix that he carried and put it on the table next to his shot next to his and you know it's just a shot of his syringe and this crucifix and it's beautiful you know and it doesn't even have him in it um i i wonder uh you also talked about privilege and, and in in it, over here in philadelphia at least um there's sort of privilege even within the drug user community and and so oftentimes i i call white drug users the low-hanging fruit of drug reporting because it's really easy for a white reporter to go to a white drug user and get them to consent to have their photograph taken. Um, it's uh, a lot more difficult to make headway into the Latino population, um, which I've managed to do to some extent. Um, again, one of my most powerful photos over there is of an overdose that shows just a hand, just an arm with a needle coming out of it. And this man's out to, like, 
the next moment he falls, you don't have to see the fall. Um, but I wonder if there's anything that sort of like relates in the same way in the sense of privilege. Um, in many cases, anyone that's at a conference is already somewhat privileged um, that they can be there, they can afford to be there. Um, do you ever, uh, when you're in sort of supervised injection facilities or in, is there any equivalent in the UK to, um, to sort of that, that sort of cultural privilege that even sort of transcends into the, into the, the drug user population itself? Yeah. I mean, I, I got, um, Matt Curtis pulled me up a while ago, uh, well, quite a few years ago about the fact that there's in my harm reduction hero series, there's very few people of color in there. Um, and I spent a good six months stressing about, oh my God, is this because I'm avoiding taking pictures of people? Is it because I'm afraid to take pictures of people? And then it's looking around at the people doing this, this kind of work in the UK at the time. I think I could only pick out three or four people who weren't white. And that's not necessarily to do with the privilege of white people are getting these jobs. It's that the treatment system in the UK at the time wasn't really attractive to anybody apart from white drug users. They were as you say, they're, they're, they're not just the low-hanging fruit when it comes to reporting, they're the low-hanging fruit of treatment services because um, you don't need to go into any of the communities, you can, you know, people people are willing just to turn up. And then once those, these, those people have gone through treatment, they then tend to become the drugs workers of the future. And then you get this horrible cycle of, well then you end up with a, a staff that's all white and because there's no representation there for you why would you go to a place that's not representative not representative of you so then if you're a person of color using in the, using drugs in the UK you're not necessarily going to go to that place with them privileged as white dudes over there um when it comes to the conference stuff yeah totally the the amount of privilege at conferences is amazing and it's it's a problem. Um, it's getting. I've, I've seen it get better over the years, but it still seems to be lots of really upper middle class white guys, um, lots of professors, lots of researchers. Which is great. Researchers can be people who use drugs and can be you know people who suffer as well. But the the I think we need to be pushing for places to make sure that the folk that are being represented at conferences are as much as possible the a spread of everybody that needs to be there. The conferences that I that I run in um I I, I work for an organization in the UK called HIT. And the conferences that we run, we try and make sure that our conferences are accessible to, to everybody by offering free places at it for people who use drugs. But yeah, we need more representation across communities to kind of address the privilege thing i i absolutely agree with you um do you have any advice for a young budding photojournalist that maybe wants to start um taking photos of the drug space let's say somebody who's a teenager and wants to get into this kind of field um where should they get started 
building relationships um you've got to, you've got to build relationships as much as possible so that's um not necessarily always working for free although pretty much every piece of work i've ever done has been almost free if not free um but you if you build those relationships with either the the drug using community in your area um or if you're wanting depending on the kind of spaces that you're wanting to get into um so for instance the the work in australia that came from photographing the drug consumption rooms there was because i was building relationships with the medical director from there marianne and she really liked my photography so she wanted me to go down there and photograph for them and i said i would do it for airfare only the other thing is to know when the photo is yours and when it's not yours it's it's brilliant to build relationships and the privilege thing just to come back to it i say there's there's photos that are yours to take and there's photos that are not yours to take when we were in porto they had a woman's space that they were setting up which was a safe space for women to use drugs when they're at the conference um it was set up by women it was run by women and then on the last day of the conference they were going to open it for men to, to go as well and i had i think four different people from that space ask me if i would go in and photographic because as you were saying i i'm trusted by certain members of the community but that's not my photograph to take this is a woman's space um in the same as you were saying about it's difficult to get into um latina spaces there are latina photographers if there aren't find somebody who wants to be and train them up as a photographer give them tips buy them a camera if need be um as it was at this conference, there was a young uh, Canadian photographer there and I got talking to her and we introduced her to the people from the women's space and she went in and documented it because that's not my photograph to take. That's not my community. That's not my, I'm of, of all the people to photograph a women's only space, a middle-aged white guy is not the guy to take those photos. So I, I want to shift gears a little bit back to sort of like the the mechanics of photos involving in involving drug use and so we we talked about the sort of recent mainstream photo essays like time magazines opioid diaries and that was the one faces of an epidemic with uh so when when garth mullins from the crackdown was on the show we, we we talked about these and how we all sort of had like an immediate distaste for them and, uh, you know, in looking at your images of Dan Big, like there, there's a couple very joyful ones of Dan laughing and Dan smiling and having like a, a close up of, of Dan's face. And, and I think to me, like that gets to sort of de like, it, it's almost like this is Dan Big decontextualized from the drug using environment. Like, like no one takes a look at that picture and thinks of Dan as a drug user. He's he's sort of a person first. So to me, it's almost like the the close-ups of people is the sort of photo equivalent of person-first language. And I was just wondering, you know, if if that kind of like makes sense for you. Like if it if it when you were taking those photos, was it deliberate to just I'm just going to shoot Dan as a person? I couldn't I couldn't not shoot Dan as a person because of the fact that's how that's my relationship with that or that was my relationship with him um 
as I said, he was in my house. He deliberately come to Derby, where I live, to meet my daughter. And there's there's other photos in that series where he's standing outside my house teaching my, at the time, 10-year-old daughter how to inject naloxone using one of the auto-injectors that talk to you. Um, he And he treated her as an equal, which is one of the, the things that I love most about Dan and an awful lot of my peers that come to the, that meet my daughter. Um, he treated her exactly the same way as he would have treated you, as he would have treated me, as he would have treated all of us. And that humanity comes through. And I think when you're talking about, especially with portraiture, when it's not environmental portraiture, so when it's not a person where you're showing the person in the space that they're in, when you're just showing the person, when you get that close to somebody and there's that that thing in photography, uh, the main thing that's wrong with your photos is you're not close enough. When you're that close to somebody, you do always end up catching the humanity in them. And it doesn't matter whether or not that's somebody who's using drugs. It doesn't matter whether or not that's even right-wing politicians. It doesn't matter whether or not it's people on death row. If you, if you get close enough with the camera, you can see the humanity in them. And that is something that connects us all. This is, I mean, I think Albie talked about the fact that we, in one of your previous podcasts, about the fact that we need to connect and we need to collaborate and we need, it's always about connection. And this is why a photograph where somebody's looking directly out of the frame of the photograph is so powerful because you can't look at that photograph and not have that person looking back at you. And I think your photos of Dan, everyone did connect with that. And that's why when he died, everyone rushed to you to ask to use your photos or some people used them without permission or whatever. I mean, I, I, I think you took sort of the, the quintessential photo of Dan Big. And I think that's such an amazing accomplishment. I mean, as, as I said, that, that photo of Dan was, it, it holds a soft spot for me anyway, because of where it was taken. Um, but it was, it was, a, it was a doubly difficult time when he died because that was when I was in, well, I was traveling to Australia when I found out that Dan was dead. Um, I'd got off the plane in, um, on my, on my stop off. I, w I had two hours in an airport and I had a message from Greg saying, uh, are you free to talk? And then he we chatted and he said look this is happening this is going to break um it's not gone public yet but it will probably be public in the next couple of hours um so then i had to get on a plane on my own fly the last leg to australia so i'm then thousands of miles away from my family for three weeks thousands of miles away from chicago where i kind of wanted to get on the plane and go to chicago um in a town in a in a country that even though uh, there were certain people who knew of Dan not very many and then I had to give some um public talks about photography and the importance of photography knowing full well that I had slides of Dan in there but every time I opened my phone every time I opened a computer screen somebody else was sharing that image and I I was fine for everybody to share everybody that asked for permission to use the image got permission everybody that didn't ask for the image to use permission to use it it's the community's image as far as i'm concerned i don't own that image anymore um but it 
it was really hard because I every time it was like a punch to the face. And there's an article on my site about when you're the photographer and you're part of the community. And I think this is what's different between the photos I take and the photos from the Time magazine spread. Because that guy's a war photographer. He's used to take, and he was taking war, photo, war photos there. He's taken photos of the war on drugs. Um, but if one of those people in those photos died the next week, he would carry on eating his cereal on a morning and not worry about it. Um, I've the amount of people that I've got photos of who have died, and there's I've I've had, including some people I know that we we all know, I've had people tell me specific photos that they want me to share and they want to be shared when they die and if they die of an overdose and it's not just one person it's not just two people it's a significant number of people have told me exactly which images to do and that's the difference when you're when you're a photographer within a community um you you are producing something for that community and for that community long term um which is always going to take a life beyond the photo itself and it it does mean then that you get a really weird relationship with grief if that makes sense it does i mean it sounds like a tremendous amount of responsibility and is another illustration of how how much trust you have within the community it's uh it's really heavy stuff but I can't think of someone else who has really, like you, take taken on that role. Yeah, it's, and it's it's a role that it's it's upsetting to take on, but it's a role I'm happy to take. I'm I'm kind of separated enough from, um, because of the fact I work from home. I work, even though a lot of the people I'm photographing are from the US or international. I I live in a small town in the UK, so it's I'm I'm separated enough that it isn't devastating every time but i don't know it's it's i can't help but come back to the fact this is privilege this is a privilege that i have and and in the 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 original meaning of privilege that i'm i know i it's an honor to be able to do this because these are heroes at the end of the day ordinary everyday heroes people who are out doing things to make somebody else's life a little bit better well uh, Nigel, I'd like to go on record um, by saying that if we are ever all in the same room together, um, which would be a miracle, I think probably I would like to commission you to take a narcotic portrait and uh, of of, us, of the team, um, and you'd be duly compensated, of course. Uh, but it would be an honor to uh, to have you take our picture. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, let's all let's all go to Philly. We got to do a live show. We'll, we'll fly out Nigel and and that's the dream. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> well, this seems like a good place to wrap up. Nigel, is there anything else that you want to talk about or let people know? There is. There's. I mean, there's obviously go go to my website and uh, you've already shared the address for that. But there's one of the website that I've been working on for the past year or so. And we're going to do a bit more with it soon. But it's harmreductionphilosophy.com. And I said earlier, I think harm reduction is a philosophy. It's a way of living life. Not everybody that does harm reduction uses it as a philosophy, but I think a significant portion of us do. And there's a questionnaire on there 
to try and nail down this and it's a bit of a big ask but we're going to try and write the philosophy of harm reduction as a philosophical model in the same way of stoicism or any any of the other ancient philosophies we're going to try and write harm reduction as a proper philosophy okay listeners go to harmreductionphilosophy.com and fill out that questionnaire that sounds like a really important project thank you all right i think that that's good thanks so much for coming on the program man yeah thank you nigel that was really beautiful absolute pleasure thank you Thanks for listening to episode 21 of Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moran, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. Opening music this time is by BioUnit. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. It's been a whole year since we started this program, and we're so grateful to our supporters who helped make it happen. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is spread the word. Give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix, and tell all your friends about us. You can also become a patron at patreon.com narcotica, where you get access to exclusive bonus content, and help us pay our bills a little bit. We're so grateful to the people that helped make this program possible. Thank you. If you want to send us a suggestion or comment, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.